Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. We're going to continue our study today on Matthew chapter 6. We're in the sermon on the mount, and uh, we, we finished a chapter. We finished Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 6. Um, one of the things, you, if you've um, walked with Jesus for a long time, you probably already know this, um, but I see some of you that I don't recognize today, so I don't want to assume anything. Um, in the Bible, there are chapters, and there's verses, right? And there's section headings and things like that. Those are not original to the Bible. Those are things that we added later. By, by we, I don't mean like me. I'm not that smart. Um, the people added them later as a way to identify and organize where certain things are in the Bible. So I, you know, if I know I'm looking for a verse on a certain thing, you know, I know, oh, well, Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And instead of like, well, I got to go to 1 Corinthians and read through that entire long letter to find the one phrase I'm looking for, it's a way to help uh, reference. That's why they're called scripture references. One thing that chapters and verse and section headings unfortunately can do is they can communicate something uh, unintentional to those of us in the modern age. See, when we read a book, a new chapter usually means new content. There's a new idea that's going to get fleshed out, or if it's a narrative, we're, we're moving to a new section of the narrative. We're going to move the story along in that way. And uh, so sometimes... When, where we decided we would put chapters and verse headings and things like that, um, if you're not careful, can make you think that we're actually transitioning to a brand new topic. Well, it's a new chapter, so it must be a new topic. In fact, today, Jesus is going to keep on the exact same topic that he's been talking about for all of chapter 5. Yes, he's going to continue talking about the general topic of the kingdom of God and what a citizen of the kingdom looks like and how you become a citizen of the kingdom. So all of that is still his general idea. But even the more specific idea that he's been getting into that we've been covering the last four weeks about uh, external righteousness and internal righteousness, that exact same idea is actually going to continue in what we're going to talk about today. So to catch you up, um, Jesus is teaching not against the Old Testament at the end of chapter 5. He's teaching against bad teachings and faulty interpretations of Old Testament law. Things where pe- basically the idea is people are looking at the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. They're, they're ignoring the moral principles behind the law and they're saying, well, as long as I don't do the bad thing, I'm right with God. Right? The Bible says, the Old Testament says, thou shalt not murder. So as long as I don't murder, I'm fine. It says don't commit adultery. So as long as I don't commit adultery, I'm fine. And whatever goes on in my mind and heart is immaterial to my position before the Lord. And Jesus says, absolutely not. He says a righteousness that's just based on avoiding doing a bad thing externally is not true righteousness. I would say, at best, that's external compliance. Um, So Jesus counters this false idea that people are, you know, this pop theology of the day and and things that certain religious teachers are leaning in on. And he's showing us that not just his disciples and the people listening back then, but we break God's law in our hearts long before we ever break it with our hands. He says, 
you, you know, you're looking at the murder thing and you're like, as long as I don't lift my hand against my brother, I'm fine. But then what Jesus says is if you hate your brother in your heart, if you devalue your brother, if you treat them as worthless, you've already murdered them in your heart and you're just as guilty as if you'd lifted your hand and struck them down. You're just as sinful because it starts in your heart. Same thing with adultery. Same thing with, um, with being untrustworthy and swearing oaths and things like that. People are like, well, you know, adultery, as long as I don't do the physical thing, I'm good. And Jesus is like, no. If you look at a woman with lust in your heart, if you imagine sinning with that person and you imagine that person sinning with you, you've already committed adultery. He's showing us that you might look great on the outside. You might have all the right actions lined up and you might look righteous, but it is possible to look righteous while at the same time having rot in your heart. And what he's getting after is that a perfect righteousness inside is what actually makes you right before God. While at the same time, that perfect righteousness inside is actually what enables you to fill all the demands of the law. So it's not, I gotta try hard, I gotta do all the things or don't do certain things and it's all external and then maybe eventually it'll worm its way into my heart. Jesus says it's the other way around. He says, you need a perfect righteousness placed inside you first. That's what makes you right with God and then only through the power of that perfect righteousness taking up residence inside you can you actually fulfill all of these obligations of the law anyway. So that's what we've been talking about. And he's, like I said, he's been talking about these issues, uh, about sin issues like anger and adultery and lying and revenge and things like that. And now he's gonna transition. He's gonna continue saying the same thing, but he's gonna talk about doing good deeds. So today we're gonna talk about good deeds and why we do them. And I'll, I'll open up by asking a question. This one's a real easy one. So like, I don't think you'll get this wrong. Is it a good thing to do good deeds? Absolutely, I agree. Next question, Um, are Christians called to do good deeds? Yeah, 100%. Um, No matter whether you're a a veteran Christian and you've been serving the Lord for a while or you're a young Christian, maybe you've given your life to Jesus recently, we're all called to do good deeds. In fact, that's actually part of my job as a pastor, says Ephesians chapter four, um, that... I am supposed to help equip the saints to do good deeds. Uh, Pastor Phyllis said it before, uh, our job is to help you go to work in a spiritual sense. And we still have to do good deeds ourselves. We're disciples who are also pastors. So, but that's the whole point. We're supposed to be helping to train each and every one of you to do good works and to train ourselves to do good works. So absolutely, the Bible says we should do good works. Good works like what? What are some good works the Bible says that we should be doing? Helping widows, absolutely, that's one. Old and New Testament, yep, absolutely. Anybody else, good deeds? Visit the sick, Uh uh-huh, yep. Feed the poor, 100%, absolutely. Visit people in jail, yep, you got it. That's great, you guys are on the ball this morning, I love it. Yeah, those those are all good deeds. Every single one of those deeds that you guys just mentioned, visiting people who are sick, visiting people in prison, feeding the poor. All of these things are contained in Scripture. And all of these things are things that, in the first century, the people, the Jewish people that Jesus are teaching, these are things that they did. These are things that, because of who they were and because they were God's people and because the law said, the law actually makes provision for people who, who are in need, for widows, for orphans, 
for foreigners, for people who are disadvantaged, the Old Testament makes provision for that. And one of the ways that it does that is it encourages us and commands us, actually. It doesn't just encourage, it commands to do good deeds. And there's three good deeds that Jesus is going to talk about here in Matthew chapter 6. But before he gets into it, he starts with a real quick warning. He says, watch out. This is the very beginning of verse 1. He's been talking up to this point about sin, and then he transitions and says, watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose your reward from your Father in heaven. So Jesus, before he continues, he stops with this this warning because he knows what his people are thinking. They're probably thinking, all right, well, Jesus just got done showing us that there's all the sin in our hearts, and yeah, okay, I guess so. I guess I'm angry at my brother and stuff like that, okay. But I've done good things, Jesus. I give to the poor. Well, I pray all the time, long, loud, elegant prayers with big words, and I fast, and when I fast, I just look so miserable because it's just such a hard time for me to fast. I do all these good deeds. Doesn't that count for something? And what Jesus is going to show us is that it's not enough to just do the good deed. There's a heart condition behind why we do the good deed that Jesus says is of critical importance. And that's what he's going to talk about here in the first half of Matthew chapter 6. So he says, watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others. Now I'm going to stop for a second. Um, and let you know that we have just run into what appears to be a contradiction in the Bible. Jesus says, don't do your good deeds publicly. He says, it seems like the opposite thing in Matthew chapter 5. So let me ask you this. If there's a legitimate, unsolvable contradiction in the Bible, is that a problem for us? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because... We say this book is God's word, and it's perfect, and it's infallible, it's trustworthy, it's reliable, it's everything God wants us to know and nothing that he doesn't want us to know. It's all in here. It's the word of the Lord. And if there's a contradiction in here that we can't explain, and it's legit, then this book is not perfect, and then our faith is based on very, very shaky ground. Additionally, Jesus has been preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and it's in one sitting. So if 10 minutes ago he says one thing, and then now he says something that contradicts the thing he just said, then he's not even a good teacher. Would, would you agree with that? If, some, if I'm like, hey, the sky is blue today, and then 10 minutes later I'd be like, guys, when the sky, the sky is green and it's wonderful, you'd be like, what? You know, you're a horrible teacher. It's not, you know, it's like hurricane weather because the sky actually does get green. That was a terrible example. Just work with me. But you see what I'm saying. If I'm going to contradict myself in my own teaching, Maybe I don't know the material as much as I thought I would, or maybe I'm just not a good teacher. And so if there's actually a contradiction here, we have problems. So let me show you the contradiction. So Jesus here says in Matthew 6, 1, watch out, don't do your good deeds publicly. Go back to Matthew chapter 5 for a minute. Jesus does a teaching on two things. The first thing is salt. What's the second thing? Light. Yeah, he does a teaching on salt and light. And here's what he says, verses 14 through 16, about light. He says, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. Here comes the the seeming contradiction. In the same way, 
let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your Father in heaven. Do you see the problem? What's the problem? In Matthew 6, 1, he says, does he say, do your good deeds publicly or, or don't? And then here, what does he say? Do your good deeds publicly. Yeah. Oh boy. Okay. So is this a contradiction? What's the deal? Here's the good news. If you just take that one phrase at face value, sure, it looks like one, but Jesus actually explains both the don't do it publicly and do it publicly in the the very next half of the sentence. And what he's going to show us is that he's not actually concerned with the publicity of the deeds. And the reason I know this is because Jesus does good deeds in private and in public, and he encourages his disciples to do it in private and public. So the publicity of the deed cannot be the issue here. Well, okay, smart guy, what's the issue? Let me show you. In Matthew 6, 1, he says, don't do your good deeds publicly. Why? To be admired by others. If you're doing a good deed so that you can be seen and known as a good deed doer, so you can build your own reputation, so you can be admired by others. Jesus says, don't do that. In other words, that motivation, I'm going to call it selfish motivation, that is a problem. And this kind of motivation says, you know, the reason I'm doing the good deed is so I can be known as somebody who does good deeds, and so people will praise me and glorify me, and I'm going to build my brand, I'm going to build my kingdom as people praise me for the good things I do. Totally selfish motivation. And Jesus says, if you're doing it with that motivation, don't do your good deeds publicly. So then back to Matthew chapter five, what's the motivation there? He says, let your good deeds shine out for all to see. Why? So that everyone will praise your heavenly father. Totally different motivation, right? The first one says, I wanna be admired. The second one says, I want God to be admired. I want God to be praised. This motivation, I'm going to call it righteous motivation. It says, the reason I'm doing the good deed is to glorify God. I want to do this thing in such a way that I not only bless another individual instead of blessing myself, I want to bless another individual, but I want to do it in such a way as to let people see God working in me so that he gets the praise, not me. So what Jesus is showing us, and this will pop up on your screen, is that the same good deed can be done with one of two motivations. The first one is the motivation to point an arrow to yourself. So you get the glory, so you build your reputation. The second motivation is to point an arrow to God. So he gets the glory, and so his kingdom is built. These two motivations exist simultaneously in the heart of everybody who is a believer. Let me show you why. Um, If you're not a believer, you definitely have the first motivation. Point an arrow to yourself. And I'll admit that. Before I truly surrendered to the Lord, um, it was all about me. But Then when I got saved and I came into his kingdom by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that his Holy Spirit was was fused together with my spirit. So now internally I have my sinful nature and now I have the Holy Spirit. And so the sinful nature wants to point an arrow to myself. The Holy Spirit wants to point an arrow 
to Jesus, wants to point an arrow to God. And I have these two conflicting motivations at war within me. And every time I can do a good deed, I'm gonna do it out of one of these two things. I'm gonna do it out of my flesh that says, give me praise, give me adoration, point an arrow to me, let everybody see what I'm doing. Or we can do it out of the spirit and the power of the spirit at work in us that guides us to point an arrow to God with our deeds. So Jesus is gonna show us here He's going to discuss three good deeds that he assumes all of his disciples are doing. He's going to discuss giving. Uh, more specifically, he's going to uh, talk about giving to the poor or almsgiving. He's going to discuss prayer. And he's going to discuss fasting. Now, he says for each of these things, he's going to say, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. So Jesus assumes that disciples are going to do these good deeds. He doesn't say if you give, if you pray, if you fast. He says when you pray, when you give, when you fast. So he assumes that disciples are gonna have giving to the poor, praying, and fasting in some sort of a regular rhythm in our lives. We're going to get around to doing it. It's when, not if. So he's gonna discuss these three good deeds that he assumes his disciples are doing. And then he's gonna show us both of these different motivations, the selfish motivation and the righteous motivation, and how they work with the same good deed And then he's going to discuss rewards for both motivations. Because you might think, well, of course, there's only a reward for a godly motivation. But in fact, what Jesus will tell us is that there is a reward for the selfish motivation. But Jesus clearly values one of them above the other and shows that one of them is, one of these motivations, of course, is more acceptable before the Lord. So let's dig into these three things and see what Jesus has to teach us about good deeds done with motivations of selfishness and righteousness. So uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, he talks about giving. He says, when you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. But when you give to someone in need, Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father, who sees everything, will reward you. So Jesus is discussing almsgiving, giving to the poor. It's a good thing to do. Old Testament says we should do it. They're doing it here. It's a good thing to do. But there are people who give, says Jesus, with the intention of being seen. They call attention to their acts of charity because they want to be seen as somebody who is charitable, as somebody who is a generous giver. Um, we don't you know, have like trumpets and stuff like that that we walk around blowing in the street these days. So I was trying to think of a modern example. So it would be like this. If, uh, if, you, if you're trying to give with selfish motivation, right? if you're walking around Baltimore City and you pass by, pass by a homeless man or a homeless woman, and you see them, and you know you got, you got 20 bucks in your wallet, and you're like, I'm going to give that person the money. Selfish motivation does this. I want to make sure I'm being seen so people know that I'm giving money. So you like, you kind of look around. And it's like, oh, there's only two people. It's not enough of a crowd. So, you know, you pull out your phone and like have a pretend conversation. Oh, Jerry, oh, it's so good to see you. How are you? It's so great. And then, you know, you're talking and you're looking over your shoulder. And when like enough people are walking by, you're, okay, got to go by. Get your money out. <clears throat> have $20. God bless you. 
and then you like you walk away while you're looking over your shoulder at all the other people to make sure they saw what you were doing and you're speaking loudly to gain all of their attention i mean it's it doesn't that sound ridiculous but that's the heart motivation that says i want to be seen and it might not come out specifically that way but if you're looking around to see like oh, who's seeing me do the good deed maybe i should wait until there's more of a crowd that shows what's kind of going on in your heart. So Jesus says there are people who give with the attention of being, or with the intention of gaining attention. That was great. I wish I'd put that in your notes because it rhymes. That was fantastic. Just came to my mind. There you go. So write it down, somebody. Uh, yeah, they give with the intention of getting attention. And so he says, he says there is a reward for this. He admits that there's a reward for giving selfishly. Well, what does he say it is? He says, the people that give this way, they've received all the reward they will ever get. In other words, if you're giving to be seen by man and man sees you give, congratulations, you've received your reward. You want, yeah, by being seen. You wanted to be seen. Whoop-de-doo, you got seen. Good job. And that's it. That's all the reward you get. There's no reward from your heavenly father. What does he say in verse one, right? He says, don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others for you will lose the reward from your father in heaven. There's a good, there's a reward attached to this good deed, but if you do it in the wrong way, you lose it. And the only reward you get is the temporary admiration of man, which if we're all being honest, is super fickle, right? Because it's just as fickle as we are. Um, you ever seen somebody maybe on the news like do one good thing and everybody's like, oh, they're so wonderful. What an example of morality. And then like, I don't know, they say something somebody doesn't like the next day and all of a sudden they just, we start trashing this person. Our admiration is super fickle. And it's just, I mean, if you want to keep earning the admiration of man, you got to work at it. It's not enough to just do a good deed one time. You got to keep doing good deed after good deed after good deed to kind of build up your own kingdom and your brand. Well, guess what? When you're working to build up your own reputation, you're not working to build up God's reputation. And Jesus indicates that there's a problem with that. And I think if you're a Christian, you would probably agree. So he's saying, don't spend your time working to try and build your own reputation because that's all you're gonna get. It's fleeting, it's temporary. At best, you're gonna have it, at best, and it never happens this way, but at best, you're gonna have it for this life, but then you get to the next life, and what is that? what has that done for you? You lost your heavenly eternal reward. So what is the prescription here? What does Jesus say we should do? He says, when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private. So what in the world does this mean? Has anybody ever wondered what this means? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Um, I don't know if you know this. This is really scientific. Your hands don't have brains, so they don't actually know anything. Following? Okay. I didn't actually expect you to be that intensely interested in my dumb illustration. You guys are like really leaning in. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This is great. But yeah. They don't know anything, like, sorry, guys, but they don't. They're operated by my brain, which, you know, sends signals through my nervous system, and they do what I tell them to do. So this language, you know, let, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, it is, it is hyperbolic. It's, it's an exaggeration, and it's on purpose, but it illustrates a point. And we get a little clue as to what this point is in verse 4, where he says, give your gifts in private. Interestingly, uh, you got to note this, Jesus doesn't say, 
well, if you can't give with a good motivation, don't give. He says, no, still give your gifts. But give your gift in such a way that it kills your pride. Give it private, where you can have the opportunity to look at how many other people are looking. Give it in private, and that way, your father can reward what you're doing. If you're struggling with that motivation, why? Because if you give a gift privately, if you're willing to give a gift privately, you're essentially saying, it doesn't matter to me who sees that I gave the gift. It doesn't matter that they know that I'm the one that gave it. It doesn't matter that anybody knows how much I gave. What matters is that I do the right thing out of a love that God has birthed in my heart for my neighbor. That's why I'm giving. And it doesn't matter what kind of credit I get. In fact, I would love it if I didn't get credit and God gets all the credit instead. So back to verse three, what is this left hand, right hand, not know what they're doing kind of thing? What is this really talking about? It's talking about, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it this way, like a holy secrecy. And I know secrecy is not a word that generally uh, jives with Christianity because secrets usually cause us problems. But what I mean by this is it's as if you're willing to keep from yourself the good thing you're doing. You're willing to keep it secret from yourself so that you don't get puffed up. Does that make sense? Um, Spurgeon says it this way, and this is old English language. It's from the late 1800s. So, you know, bear with me. Here's what he says on the topic. Seek secrecy for your good deeds. Do not even seek your own virtue. Hide from yourself that which you yourself have done that is commendable. For the proud contemplation of your own generosity may tarnish all your alms. Keep the thing so secret that even you yourself are hardly aware that you are doing anything at all praiseworthy. Now, admittedly, it's not... You can't really do this practically. Like if I have a $5 bill, a $10 bill, and a $20 bill in my wallet, and I go give it to somebody, but I want to give in such a way that I don't know what I give, and I reach in and I grab one bill and give it to them without looking at it, and then I go on my way. When I open my wallet later to buy my coffee, I'm going to look in there and go, I have a 5 and a 10. I must have given the 20. So, you know, practically, it doesn't work exactly. And besides, the principles of stewardship that Jesus teaches all throughout the Bible are that we do need to actually know what we have so that we know what we have available to give and if we can give out of margin or if we need to give sacrificially. So Jesus isn't saying don't be aware of what you're giving, but he says give in such a way as to not even give yourself the chance to get prideful about your own gift. This is all the way in your heart because you can give a gift in private and still puff yourself up. So what Jesus is saying is not just, you know, don't just do it in public to be admired by others, but even in private, when you give your gift, give it in such a way that you don't let yourself get puffed up. Even just by yourself, give God the glory for the good thing that you're doing. Does that make sense? We do this, we give this way, again, not to increase our reputation in the eyes of man, but to increase the Lord's. Not to bless ourselves, but to bless others. Because here's the thing. If we... If we give with a selfish motivation to someone, and we're essentially saying, well, I want to you know, build myself up and that kind of thing, what we've really done is we've turned that person into an object. This downtrodden person is an object for me to ascend in the public eye. 
and Jesus is saying that's just as rotten as when you turn somebody, Matthew chapter five, when you turn somebody into an object for your anger or you reduce someone to an object for your lust. It's just as bad when you reduce someone in need to an object for you to use to make you feel some kind of way and make people feel some kind of way about you. It's totally missing the point. There is no reward for your heavenly father. So if you struggle with the selfish motivation, give in private in such a way that it absolutely slays your flesh and gives you the opportunity to give all the glory and all the credit to God. That's what Jesus says here about giving. And then, and and here's the best part. He says, your father who sees everything will reward you. You don't just have to do it in public because, well, God only sees what I do in public. No, he sees what you do in private too. So if you give in private, it doesn't matter. God sees and he sees the condition of your heart. And if you have a righteous motivation behind your gift, he sees it, he doesn't miss it, and he can reward it. What kind of rewards are we talking, right? We always want to quantify the rewards. Like, what do we get? We get things in this life, and we get things in the next life. And I'm pulling this from other parts in the Bible, but you, you get a sense of his pleasure over you. Have you ever experienced that before? where you do something and you've done it wholly as unto the Lord and not unto man, and you kind of almost, well, almost hear him whisper or he does whisper to your heart, well done. That is like the best feeling ever. That'll keep me going for a long time. Um, I hope that you've experienced that in your life, and if you haven't yet, I hope that you will, because that is, that is enough reward all by itself. And, and those of you who have experienced that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. What other rewards? Well, there's increased levels of stewardship and responsibility. Jesus says, those who are faithful with little will be given much. So if you're faithful with what you have and you give with the right motivation, you open the opportunity for God to keep blessing you so that you can then turn it around and continue blessing others. Again, not to build your own kingdom, but to build God's kingdom. And then you also, just another thing, you have you know, the benefit of, of seeing somebody else grow in their walk with Christ or, glo- or grow closer to making a decision to follow Jesus because they see him in your example and that's attractive. And it draws people to want to know more about Jesus and be more like him. So these are, these are all some rewards and there's more. There's just a couple that we get on this earth and we get rewards in heaven. What, what does that look like? I don't know. I have no clue. Um, if the rewards are this great on this side of eternity though, um, how much more amazing are they going to be in heaven when we get to receive it like standing in the full glory of Jesus himself. That's gonna be awesome. So I don't know specifically what's waiting, but Jesus says there are rewards from your father. And when you do the good deed with the right motivation, you set yourself up to be rewarded because when you do it with a selfish motivation, you're taking the reward for yourself. And again, those rewards are limited and they don't have eternal worth. So do the good deed with the right motivation. Let's move on to prayer. Verse five, he says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you and pray to your father in private. Then your father who sees everything will reward you. So he transitions to a new a new good deed. He moves from giving to prayer. But did you notice he kind of keeps the exact same pattern? He says, 
when you do the good thing, don't do it like the hypocrites who dot, 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 and then he explains what they're doing. And by hypocrite, and there's, there's more on this in your study guide if you want to dig into the language a little bit more. I did a little section on this in your study guide. The real short version is a hypocrite in this case, you know, we, we say a hypocrite is somebody who says they believe something, but that they act in a way contrary to what they say they believe. So essentially what he's saying here is there are hypocrites who are giving with the wrong motivation. And the reason they're doing that is because, you know, they say, well, I'm doing this to build God's kingdom, but in their hearts, they're really doing it to build their own. So that's what he means by hypocrite here. So he says, don't be like them. They're not gonna get any, well, they, they're getting all the reward they're ever gonna get already. But then when you do the good deed, do it in such a way, dot, dot, dot. And then your father who sees everything will reward you. So this is kind of the pattern he uses to talk about giving and prayer and fasting. And so he says, don't be like the hypocrites who pray just so they can be seen praying and become known as somebody, you know, like I said earlier, we all laugh, you know, somebody who just long, elegant prayers and they use big vocabulary words that might not even actually be words, we don't know. Um, but they just, they just love to, to go on and on and on. And I'm not saying that long prayers are bad. What's the problem? The, the motivation, that's what's important. What's the motivation? If you're standing on the street corner with or without a megaphone, if we're talking Baltimore, and, uh, you know, you're praying, and you just want to be seen and you just want to be heard, that's a selfish motivation. You want to be known as somebody who prays, a good prayerer, I guess, one who prays. But if you pray with the right motivation, if you pray to, to know God better, to share with him, to let him share with you, to hear his voice, to receive strength and power that you need and grace for every day and all that kind of stuff, and a motivation to pray so that his will is done in your life and not your own will, but his be done, that's a, that's a kind of motivation that God can reward. And so Jesus makes the same, he, he basically says the same thing that he said about giving. Pray in, you know, if you can't pray in public without your selfish motivation kicking in, then go pray in private. He doesn't say, well, don't pray until you get your stuff together. Just keep praying, but just do it in private. Pray in such a way that it kills your pride. And then your father who sees everything will reward you. Now, this section here, we get a lot more on prayer than we do on giving and on fasting. Because Jesus is going to give it, he's going to give us some bonus content here. And in this bonus, we actually get the Lord's Prayer, which is, you know, the most famous prayer. We could probably, most of us, you know, if you've been around Christianity long enough, you could probably recite this. Uh, without even thinking about it. And we recite it every single Tuesday at Celebrate Recovery, right, when we close our, our open share. So I say it at least once a week. Um, and there's so, there's so much in this section on prayer, and I kind of have to move fast, but again, lots more in your study, in your study guide, so take a look there. All right, T, refresh, I'm ready to go. So he continues in verse seven. He says, when you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. So this is super interesting to me. He says, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. What is he talking about? Um, uh, Gentiles and people who, who worshiped pagan gods at this point, you know, um, the emperor worship is a thing that's starting to rise. And you have, uh, you know, the Roman pantheon, which they just stole from the Greeks. Um, people who worshiped those gods would just pray on and on and on and on and on, and they would use the same repetitive phrases over and over. Why? Because their, their belief was that the gods didn't really care. 
that they were just up, you know, up on Mount Olympus just doing their own thing. And really the only reason that a, that a God would ever get involved with mankind is when it's going to advance their own agenda. And you see this all over Greek and Roman mythology. It's crazy. Like every single story, the gods are just as selfish as people. And the reason is because we made them up. We made them in our own image. This is a totally different sermon for another day, but there you go. I'll just drop that nugget for you. Um, so, but they're up there doing their own thing. They don't really care what's going on with me. So if I need one of them to act on my behalf, they're not already listening. So I need to do some stuff to draw their attention. So one of the things I can do is I can pray. And so I'm just gonna say the name of whatever God I need to you know, call upon. And I'm gonna say it over and over and over. And I'm gonna say the phrase that Jimmy, not a good Roman name, but Jimmy said that he was praying to this God last week and he said it worked and he got what he needed for. So I'm just gonna pray that praise a whole bunch of times. And I'm gonna do some good deeds just, just in case and hope that with all this noise I'm making, that God is gonna hear me and he's gonna look down and see my, you know, my repetitive piety and then he's gonna act on my behalf. So that's what they would do. That's how Gentiles and that's how people that worshiped pagan gods would pray. Why? Because the gods didn't care. They weren't interested. So what does Jesus say? He says, don't pray like this. Why? Because your father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. Have you noticed the fact that Jesus keeps calling God Father in this section? In Matthew 6, 1 through 18 that we're covering today, Jesus doesn't say God. He says Father. Every time he's talking about God, he says Father. He says, God is like your Father. You pray to God as your Father. This is why you don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do, because the reason you're babbling on is because you think you need to get somebody's attention. God is your father. You already have his attention. Why? Because he's your father, because you're his kid, because he loves you. He has love and favor over you because you're his child. I have two kids, and my wife also has two kids. <laughs> Not just me. <laughs> uh, Esther is six, and Oliver is 15 months old. And uh, Oliver does not do a single thing on purpose to gain my love and favor. Now, he does some things that are super cute. And, you know, we, we filmed them, and we put them on Facebook for all of you to watch. But he doesn't do them on purpose, because he doesn't really know yet. His brain is still developing. So he does things that are great, but it's not with the intent of gaining my favor, but he still gets my favor and love anyway. Why? Because he's my kid, because I love him. And because in some weird way, when he was born, extra love just came out of nowhere in my heart. It's not like I had a limited amount of love and then Esther was born. I was like, ooh, Chelsea, I can't give you all of this love. I have to split it and give some to Esther. Sorry. And then like Oliver came along and now you get even less. It's not like that. It's like new love for this little guy just popped up in my heart the second he was born. And that love and favor just comes out of me for him without me needing to try. And without him needing to earn it. It's the same thing with Esther, only she's six. So now she, you know, she knows like, oh, if I do some good things and I'm more inclined, daddy's more inclined to give me the thing I want, right? But I'm still gonna give her what she needs even if she doesn't do the good thing to deserve it. Why? Because she's my kid. Because I love her. Now, sometimes, and, and parents, you know this, and grandparents and uncles and aunts, you know this, that sometimes when your child is, is being disobedient or you know, acting in a way that's, that you don't want them to act, sometimes your expression of 
that favor and love kind of gets dammed up a bit, doesn't it? Because sometimes, because of certain behaviors, like I can't release it to you the way I want, but it doesn't mean that the love and the favor have stopped. It just means that the way I express that has to change a little bit. You know, maybe out of love, I need to discipline you instead of, you know, lifting you up and saying, wow, great job, you know, thanks for throwing that thing through the window. Not an actual thing that's happened in my house yet. <laughs> Fingers crossed, but um, yeah, it, it's, you don't, it, sometimes it changes, the expression changes, but the fact that there is love and favor doesn't change regardless of my kid's behavior. Why? Because they're my child. And if God is our father, and he's a good father, because I recognize that sometimes when we talk about, when we talk about God as our father, I had a great father growing up, and so I know a lot about God because my dad set a really good example for me, and I know that's, that's not a lot of our stories. And so sometimes when you think about God, you don't want to think about him as your father because your father did basically the opposite of what God did. And if that's the case, then I, I'm, I'm so, so sorry that that's the example that was set for you. Here's what I can say. The father knows you and he loves you, and he acts on your behalf, even sometime, even when you don't ask, before you even know what you need. He's lining up what you need because he loves you. He sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for you. When you were still a sinner, while you were still rebelling, why? Because he loves you. So we can go to him as a father who is safe. It's just like um, when Esther comes in and talks to me, um, when she needs something, uh, you know, she... She doesn't, you know, get down in a room on her knees and then, like, whisper my name a bunch of times. Again, if you can pray like that. That's fine. I'm not saying that's a bad way to pray. But, like, you know, she knows I'm downstairs. She doesn't just stay upstairs and go, like, daddy, 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 daddy. And then, like, magically I show up with a yogurt or whatever. What does she do? Well, she needs something. She just, she comes and finds me, right? Why? Because our relationship is such that she knows at any time I can go to my father and I can ask him for stuff now. I might not always get what I ask for, but he's not gonna withhold from me something that I need. And even if that understanding isn't there cognitively, it's there enough that I see in her actions that when she needs something from dad, she can leave her room and she can go to dad and ask. And this is how all of these things that I've just said, this is how our relationship with God as a father works. It's, based, it's a grace-based relationship. And I have this relationship with my kids. Like I said already, they didn't do anything to earn my favor and my love. They just get it. That is grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It's a blessing you can't earn. So therefore, if you're getting a blessing and you didn't earn it, it's grace. It's not grace like, boy, I need grace for you today, kid. It's not like that. <laughs> That's patience. It's different things. Grace says, you're my daughter, you're my son, I love you, you've done nothing to deserve it, and I'm just pouring my love and favor out on you anyway because I'm your dad. Our relationship with the Father is based on grace, and it's exhibited perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the grace of God made manifest, the eternal Son coming and dying on the cross for our sins, even though we didn't deserve it, and then giving us that forgiveness despite the fact that we don't deserve that either. It's a grace-based relationship. When you come to the Father who loves you and who adores you and who is attentive to you and your needs, even before you know what your needs are, you can open the throne room of heaven and you can walk right in and you can sit on his lap and you can tell him what you need because he's your heavenly Father and he loves you. Even though he is so powerful. Um, this, this quote 
from Tim Keller I, I love. Um, Tim Keller is arguably just one of the, one of if not the greatest Christian thinker of our time. He actually, he passed this Friday. Um, he went home to his uh, eternal reward. But I was listening to a sermon that he was preaching on this, on this section, and here's what he says. And the first two statements are very offensive, so just get ready. He says, God is a creator, so he owns you. And if you're a Christian, you know this to be true. He's the creator, and the Bible says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and I'm part of everything, so therefore I am the Lord's. So he says, God is a creator, so he owns you. And he says, God is a king, so he rules you. Also biblical, totally in there. So God is our creator, so he owns us, and he's the king, so he rules us. But then here's what he says. Because we might think, well, if he's, if, he's a, if he's the king, well, I know lots of bad kings, right? And I know lots of people that have lots of power, and that power is not always leveraged in love and in favor. So what's the deal? Well, if God is good, as Tim Keller argues, he says, yes, he's a creator. Yes, he's the king. But here's what he says. If the king is your father, then all of that power is gentled toward you. All of that power is exercised in a way of love and tenderness towards you, not to intimidate, but out of love and tenderness. When you go to the father, the almighty, all-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent, all good God. You can open the door to his throne room like a, like a prince would just walk into the king's room at night and you can ask him for what you need. And the good news is he's so attentive to you and he's so loving. He already knows what you need and he's already begun figuring out how he's gonna get it to you. I mean, he already knows. He's just setting the plan in motion. Show of hands here. Has anyone... Has anyone been in this situation before where you recognize a need and then you pray about it and God delivers that need and then after the fact, you look back and you go, wow, God started lining up that need before I even knew it was a problem. Have you ever had that happen before? Yeah, whole bunch of us. He knows what you need and because he's good and because he loves you, he starts lining everything up even before you ask. He'll do some things divinely He'll do some things, well, all of it's divine if he's doing it, but like he'll do some things that are just blatant miracles. Sometimes he'll, he'll use a brother or a sister to do a good deed like we're talking about today to bring you what you need. And I've been talking about this forever. I just, just the fact that we have this opportunity and this privilege to treat God as our father is just, it's just amazing. So I hope that you get this. This is one of the major points today is just that, that when you pray, you can pray to God as your father, as a loving, good Father. So how then can we pray? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speed through this real quick. Um, Lord's Prayer, reading from the NLT, he says, pray like this, our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. That's Lord's Prayer. And then we you know, also add on the doxology for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, which is not in the text, but is certainly all of those things are biblical. So it's okay if you add the doxology to, your, you know, to the Lord's Prayer. Here's a very quick point on the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a model for our prayers. It was never give, Jesus didn't give this 
so that we would recite it, and that's the only way we would pray. It's good to memorize this, and it's good to recite it. Why? Because if I have this in my heart, I know the way that I can pray. I know I can approach God as my Father, right? That's why it starts with our Father in heaven. I know I can go to God as my Father. And and the reason that we can pray some of the bold categories of prayers that he gives us here in this model of the Lord's Prayer, the reason we can pray some of these things is is because we have that grace-based relationship with the Father, because we know him because we know his goodness, his justice, his righteousness, his perfection, we can pray something like, hallowed be your name and mean it. You know, your name is great and above every name in existence, I have experienced that personally. I know that you are good. And the cry of my heart is that I glorify your name and that everyone around me comes to glorify your name too. So this is even almost, this, it's not just lifting up God, but it's also saying, I want God's kingdom to expand. May your name be kept holy. Hallowed be your name. Because we've experienced his good will for us, we can pray this humbling prayer that if I'm being quite honest, is really, really scary sometimes when we say, your will be done. Because God's will, the Bible says it's good and pleasing and perfect it does not say it's easy. And sometimes God will bring us some part of his will that is difficult. Sometimes it's part of his perfect will. And sometimes it's something that he's allowed that was not a part of his perfect plan for your life. But thank God he can turn all things to the good of those who love him. But it doesn't mean it's easy. But because you know God and because you've experienced his will and you know him as a good father and you know his will is good and pleasing and perfect, you can stand before him and say, okay, may your will be done. Let it be done in my life. Let it be done through my life. Because we know him as a father who loves us and knows our needs before we know them, we can ask him for our daily bread. And we can know he's not gonna turn us away. And we can know he's not going to give us a stone if we ask for our daily bread. He's gonna give us what we need. Because through Christ, Jesus, uh, God has forgiven our sins. We can confess them to him safely. And we don't experience judgment. But we can say, Lord, forgive me. And he repeatedly extends that to us. Even as we confess, even as we confess our sins, which is just one of the basic practices of being a Christian, saying, God, I recognize that I have failed today. And here's how I failed, and I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And then we can even ask him for the strength through his spirit that lives in us to defeat temptation, to live with good motivations and all that kind of stuff. He provides all that for us. And we can ask him for what we need, even forgiveness. We can ask him for strength to forgive other people, to be more like him. We can pray for his protection from the enemy and be confident that he'll grant it because we're his kids and he loves us. All of those things are kind of categories that Jesus sort of gives us here in the Lord's Prayer. So if you don't know it, it's a great thing to memorize and use as a model in your own prayers. It doesn't mean you have to start and pray in this exact order because if we're being honest there, sometimes when I'm praying and it's, it's almost like a shotgun where it's like, I got two seconds and I gotta pray for a bunch of stuff before I walk into this meeting and I just go, Lord, help me and he knows exactly what I'm talking about. So it's not like we have to only pray in this specific order. Again, this is a model that Jesus gives us and shows us all the different things that we can pray to our heavenly father for. So how does this connect with this righteous motivation we've been talking about? How does it tie in? Because praying this way advances 
God's kingdom. It keeps our focus squarely on the Lord, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, may your will be done, may your kingdom come. It focuses on his will. It focuses on building his kingdom. God, give me my daily bread so I can continue to serve you and advance your kingdom in the world. Help me to forgive because I've been forgiven. And that's the very act that brought me into the kingdom. And I want to, I want to, to exemplify that act to other people so they can come into your kingdom too. If we pray this way, and you pray with them, then it even helps you to curb some of those selfish motivations. And if you pray this prayer genuinely from your heart, it lines you up with God's word and with his will. And that will help you to live from the spirit man instead of the flesh man. Does that make sense? So this is just another, it's some extra teaching and there's a bunch more in your study guide. Um, there's a real brief section here where Jesus discusses forgiveness, verses 14 and 15. I'm gonna read it. I'm gonna give you a sentence on it and then we're gonna move on in the interest of time. Um, he says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your father will forgive your sins. So if you take that at face value, you might be like, do I have to earn forgiveness by forgiving somebody? Um, here's the one sentence. Jesus isn't saying you have to earn forgiveness. What he's saying is if you've been forgiven, if you've truly been forgiven, then you will forgive others. That's basically what he's saying. If you recognize in your heart that, you know, the sin and the rot that's in there and you recognize how much Jesus has forgiven you for, the great burden that you've been forgiven, you will then be willing to turn that around and forgive other people for the comparably little sins that they've done against you. Does that make sense? Real fast on that, more in your study guide if you're interested. Jesus talks about fasting, and this one's gonna go fast. Yeah, it's gonna go quick, because it's about fasting. He says, uh, when you fast, this is verse 16, when you fast, don't make it obvious, as the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable and disheveled, so people will admire them for their fasting. So, and, and I mean, this is, this is what people did. So imagine, you know, modern day, it's like if I wake up in the morning and I'm, I'm fasting and I just want other people to know I fast, right? We're back on doing a good deed with selfish motivation here. So I just want people to know I'm fasting. All right, well, maybe I'll, you know, muss up my hair a little bit and my hair just got cut. So it's not really going to mess up, but just imagine it's gross. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to wear dirty clothes or something and, you know, just kind of, just kind of shuffle around and look miserable. People are like, Pastor James, are you okay? Yeah, just fasting. Wow, that, you, you look like you're really suffering for the Lord. What are you fasting? Lettuce. It's just really hard, but I'm just, I'm doing it for Jesus. I'm giving up lettuce for Jesus. And I just go on my way, looking all miserable and disheveled, and people are like, wow, what, what a godly guy to give up lettuce so bad that it hurts him so deeply, Right? It's funny, but that's kind of the example here. There's a way of fasting where you fast in such a way that you get credit for doing a tough fast. Now, is Jesus saying don't fast publicly? No. Again, the publicity is not the issue. In fact, Jesus and his disciples fast publicly, and the early church fasts publicly. Uh, there's a couple different um, examples just in the book of Acts all by itself of, of public corporate fasting. So Jesus isn't saying don't fast in public. He just says, you don't need to make it obvious to call attention to the fact that you're fasting. If you're doing that, again, that's all the reward you're ever going to get. But when you fast, comb your hair, wash your face, 
don't look purposefully miserable if you're fasting. Fast for the right reasons. Don't fast so that people can go, wow, he looks so miserable. I want to be like that. What a great guy. Fast for the right reasons. Fast so that you can hear God's voice clearer, so that you can more accurately discern his will for your life. Fast to get to know him better. Fast so that your love for your neighbor is increased. These are all reasons we fast. So fast with the right motivation. Don't fast with this selfish motivation that just seeks to draw attention and point an arrow to yourself. Don't fast like that. Fast in such a way that God gets the credit and fast for the right reasons. So summing all of this up, it's clear to me from Jesus' teaching in these 18 verses, there's a right way to do good deeds and there's a wrong way to do good deeds. Both come with rewards. One is temporal and fleeting and the other's rewards are eternal. The wrong way to do it, says Jesus, is with selfish motivation where we do these deeds to lift our name up, to bless ourselves and to build our kingdom. Righteous motivation, Jesus says, this is the right way to do good deeds. And this motivation says, I'm blessing God and I'm blessing others who are made in the image of God. I'm gonna glorify God. I'm gonna lift his name up and I'm gonna build his kingdom. These are two different motivations that we have present in every believer every time you go to serve, every time you go to do a good deed. So do we still struggle? Do those these things, you know, do they conflict in our spirit? Absolutely. David Platt says this. I love this quote. He says, there's no denying that disciples of Jesus will continue to struggle with wanting man's approval. But here's the part that's gonna come up on your screen. At times, we do desire the applause of men and we seek to win their approval, but there should at least be combat against those sinful desires in a heart changed by God. There should be combat in the heart of a Christian against sinful desire. And I said that earlier, that comes from the fact that sinful desire is from our sinful nature, but we now have the nature of Christ and the Holy Spirit in us, and there is combat going on between those two things constantly. So what do we do? What's the practical here? How do we teach ourselves and train ourselves to do good deeds for the right motivation? How do we combat selfish motivation that we continue to struggle with? A couple things. Jesus said one, and I forgot to put this in your notes for some reason, but I've taught it a bunch today. Jesus says, do the good deed in such a way that it kills your pride, right? If you can't do it in public because it's gonna puff you up, still do the good deed, just do it in private. Slay your pride, crucify it. That's what Paul says, crucify the flesh. So that's one way to do it. But how do you, how do you get your motivation to the point where, you know, where I can still do the, the same thing whether I'm in private or whether I'm in public? whether we're doing it corporately or I'm just doing it by myself. How do we get to that point? How can we com combat this selfish motivation? First thing I'll suggest to you is ask God to make you aware of when your motives are less than righteous. Worship team, you can come. Ask him to make you aware of when your motives are less than righteous. Psalm 139, this is this great prayer by David where he says, search me, O God. Try my heart, test my anxious thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me. In other words, I, and I'll say this not on David's behalf, though I'm pretty sure he had the same belief that I do. I know my heart is deceitful. I know I lie to myself. I need the spirit of truth that lives in me to guide me into the truth about myself, about my own motives, about my heart, 
about why I'm doing certain things and whether or not my motive is to build myself up or to build God up. So I need God to help me, to help make me aware of times when my motives are less than righteous. So that's one thing that you can do. That's just something you can incorporate into your prayer life. God, today, if my, if my motives get out of line, would you just correct me? Would you show me? Would you speak to me? And he will. Second thing is this, humble yourself. This is the, it's two words. It's so easy to say, and it's so hard to do, isn't it? Humble yourself. Um, you know, the reason why we don't humble want to humble ourselves is because of our pride, because we want to work to build ourselves up. But here's the crazy upside down thing about God's kingdom, or I guess God's kingdom is right side up. Our kingdom is upside down, if you really think about it. But it seems so backwards to us. James 4.10 says, we, we say this, it's Celebrate Recovery every week too. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will do what? He will lift you up. And when God lifts you up, he lifts you higher and a whole lot more stable than we can lift ourselves. When you humble yourself and you say, I recognize that there is, there's still some selfish motivation in there. I humble myself and say, God, I want you to deal with me and I want you... I want to give you the opportunity to transform me to be more and more like Jesus. And this comes to the third point here. And we say this like every week at Echo now. Surrender to the Spirit's work in your life and follow his leading. This is the major work that every Christian has to do. Surrender to what the Spirit of God is doing in your life. 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about this, about how we are made more and more into the image of Jesus as we walk with him in Galatians 5 is, uh, is the fruit of the Spirit. That's Christ-likeness, and the Holy Spirit produces that in our lives. He helps, he produces Christ-like motivation in us. That doesn't come because we just, well, I just gotta you know, fight against my sinful nature, and we do have to do that, but you can't just produce this kind of motivation all by yourself. You need the Spirit's work, and he helps make us more like Christ. So really, rather than just like, you know, trying as hard as you can, to change your motivation, what do you do? You try as hard as you can to surrender and say, Holy Spirit, make me more like Jesus. Help birth in me a Christ-like motivation that, and, and a Christ-like heart that beats to see your kingdom expand, to see sinners saved, to see the loveless loved, to see those in need have what they need, to give you the glory for what you're doing and not me and to let every part of my life to let you shine through every part of my life so that you get the glory and there's no mistake why I'm doing these good deeds. So what's your motivation today? My hope is that as we close the service and prepare to go about our day, my hope is there's a greater desire in your heart to lift the name of Jesus up, to do your good deeds so that he gets all the credit and to build his kingdom through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you as he makes you more and more like Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, today, first and foremost, um, Lord, I pray for, for pure motives and clean hearts in all of your people today. I pray for my heart, for my brothers and sisters. Lord, you know, you know that there are these conflicting natures that war within us. And I thank you that the Spirit that is in us is far more powerful than the spirit that's in the world. That your spirit living in me is more powerful than my flesh. And that if I surrender to that power, that you will win in my heart. So Lord, this week, try us, test our thoughts, search our hearts and point out to us any wicked way that's in there. 
whether it relates to selfish motivation or any other kind of sin we might be dealing with, God, show us those parts of our heart that we have not yet surrendered to you and then lead us in the way everlasting. Help us, give us the power to be more and more like Christ. Help us to surrender to your will so that we can build your kingdom for your glory and not for ours. This morning, I know many of my brothers and sisters in here have made this decision, but I wanna make sure I offer an opportunity for anyone who is here today and who you recognize through the preaching today, you would recognize, okay, I'm, I'm not right with God. I thought doing good deeds was enough to make me right with God, and I, I'm realizing that's not true anymore. I recognize there's sin in my heart, there's selfish motivation in there, and I recognize that I am not right with God. But if that's you today and you're not satisfied with that statement and you want to be made right with God, I want to tell you how you can do that today. Because the work has already been done. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, went to the cross and he died a death that the Bible says we deserve to die. He didn't deserve it. So why did he die? So that he could take all of our sin and kill it. And so he could defeat the power of sin and death and then offer us forgiveness. And because he rose from the dead and he is alive, he can hear you, he loves you, and he is ready, willing, and able to offer you forgiveness. His hands are already open and the gift is is right before you. So how do you receive that gift today? You do two things. You believe and you repent. What does repent mean? It means to turn away from your sin, to recognize that you're a sinner, to admit that fact, to believe that you're a sinner and then to recognize that you need to turn away from your sin and turn towards God for forgiveness and for leadership in your life. That's repent. What do you need to believe? Well, you need to believe that Jesus Christ has already accomplished the work, that he's already to forgive you. And then you need to believe that if you ask him to forgive you and to save you, that he will. And in your heart right now, if you're repenting, and if you believe that you're a sinner, that Jesus can save you, and that he will if you ask him to, then I wanna lead you in a very simple prayer. You can pray a prayer like this in your heart right now and simply admit these things to Jesus. And it just, as simply as this, just say, Jesus, save me. I know I'm a sinner and I know I need to be saved. And I believe that through your death and resurrection, you can save me. So Jesus, save me. Give me your Holy Spirit. Help me to follow you. Be my leader, be my Lord. And help me to keep turning from my sin and turning towards you and your good way. Thank you for saving me. Amen. So with all heads bowed and eyes closed for just one moment, I just wanna give an opportunity to celebrate with anybody today who prayed that prayer. Maybe you prayed it for the first time or maybe, you've, maybe you have intentionally tried to disconnect yourself from the Lord for a really long time. And today you would say, I recognize that I've put distance between myself and Jesus and I just simply wanna recommit that part of my life to him. If you prayed that prayer for either of those reasons, I wanna celebrate that with you today. So 
this next thing I'm going to ask you to do, it's completely optional. You do not have to do this to be saved, okay? But I would love the opportunity to celebrate with you if you made that decision. So what I'm going to ask is I'm going to count to three. And if you made that decision today for the first time or if you're recommitting your life to the Lord, um, when I hit three, I would love it if you just put your hand up and just leave it up until I can make eye contact with you. Then you can put your hand right back down. It's not to embarrass you because this is a great, a great decision you've made. This is just a way that I can celebrate with you and welcome you as my brother or sister in Christ. I'm not going to point to you. I'm not going to call out or anything. As soon as we make eye contact, you can put your hand right back down. This is just a way I can celebrate that decision with you today. So if that's you and you prayed that prayer today, I'm going to count to three. Lift your hand, make eye contact with me, and then you can put your hand right back down. One, two, three. Did anybody come into the kingdom today? Amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.